Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. Monty is saying farewell to his oldest child as he drives him to orientation, so we're riding solo today, folks. Strap in. Later in the show, we're getting extra geeky as we chat with Bubba Sadowski of Greenfield Games about their summer auction, in case you, like me, need to cull your collection a bit. Aaron McKeown is in for Live Music Friday. They're teaming up with the trustees of the reservation for Scenic Songs, a hiking concert happening this weekend in Windsor. But there's so much more that they've been up to beyond music, so we'll hear about the side projects they've got going on, too. And we enter the Wine Thunderdome in Lenox with the couple behind Dared Bottle Shop and Provisions and get nostalgic about rosés. But first... We are here inside the Springfield Museums right next to the planetarium, which we saw the grand reopening of just a couple months ago. And across the quadrangle from where the Nelson Stevens exhibit is about to wrap up. So go and see that while you still can. And we are here because we are in training to become museum docents. That's going to be inconvenient considering when our show airs. Yeah, we can do it before the show starts. Okay, sure. What's your name? <laughs> Laura Sinsiwa. I live in Wilbraham, Mass., but I grew up in Springfield. What's your name? Katie Merrill. I'm from Stafford Springs, Connecticut. Larissa Murray. I'm from Westfield, but live in Belchertown now. And you're the director of education here, Larissa, but we are here with docent experts. I mean, docent is a word that I love. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I've always loved this word. My dream job, like in maybe even retirement, is to be a docent somewhere. somewhere. I, for a very brief period of time before I entered radio, was going to try to be the tour guides that drive those orange and green trolleys all around Boston. And the I learned, duck ones? Not the duck ones. Okay. Yeah. But I love the idea of explaining things in a museum setting to people. And that's what a docent essentially is. How long have you been a docent? I have worked here for almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah. And I started off... You're a dodeca a docent at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, That's only 12, yeah. Right. Dodeca. Yeah, and I started off part-time as an educator, and now I oversee the art and history docent program. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? I am the science curriculum coordinator, and I oversee the docent program as well for science docents. Mm -hmm. What does it take to be a docent? Do Kalisa and I have what it takes? What do you think, Larissa? Oh, I'm sure you do. Okay. <laughs> Apart from, but time isn't a, a real thing. That's something that you're looking for. Because this is a, a call. The museum needs docents. You know, COVID shut everything down. Field trips, school itself stopped, <laughs> as well as field trips. But those things are back. And expecting in the fall coming right up to have even more field trips to the Springfield Museums. So what do you think it takes for, to make a great docent? Somebody who really enjoys talking, like yourselves, and, okay, <laughs> and sharing knowledge that they learn through our collection. But the biggest thing is people who really enjoy working with children, because that is the majority of our uh, bread and butter, if you will, is school groups coming. Mm -hmm. What do you think it takes to make a good dose? Do you need to be like a science expert? A science computer? D did you just say science computer? <laughs> Isn't that what you call it? I don't know. Not at all. You can come with an interest in science, art, history, or Dr. Seuss, and we'll teach you everything you need to know. That's great. Are there docents who do more than one area, or do people usually concentrate in like art or science, or is there more cross-pollination? Once they learn the collection and the discipline they choose, they may go into another museum. But, of course, then they'll be here um, many days. And, you know, we might have to put a cot up for them to sleep here because they'll almost be here. Night at the museum. Everything in this museum comes to life at night. Ah! It's 
freaking awesome. All nights at the museum. I know, that would be wicked fun. <laughs> how many docents are there now? And how many new docents do you need? I would say there's probably guesstimation around 50 and um, we would like as many as people would apply. The more hands that there are, the more rest everybody gets. <laughs> so. right. Tell me about what it, like, what it has meant to you as a human being, being a docent, like some experiences that you've had in this role. Just the, seeing the smiles on the children's faces when they come in the door and just the awe that they see. A lot of times kids, this is their first exper experience in a museum, so the docents get to witness that and that's kind of amazing. And we want people to be lifelong learners. So if a kid is excited about coming here as a youngster, they go home, they sit at the dinner table with the people they live with and they talk up the museum, then they'll return with their children. And that's what we want. We want people to be lifelong museum goers. You must be lifelong learners if you're having to learn all this stuff as docents. What's something that you, from, you know, when you're out giving a tour, a little fun fact that you carry with you that you wouldn't have otherwise ever known if you had not signed up for this program? Well, I think in the MFA that George and Bell used to, their house was actually where the DeMore Museum of Fine Arts is. And he used to walk across the quadrangle and give tours over in the George Walter Vincent Smith Museum. And mm -hmm. we're talking, you know, in the turn of the last, last century. He was docent before it was cool. Yeah, he made it cool. <laughs> What's a fun fact that, uh, of something that you know that you might not have otherwise known if you didn't have to be a docent? I think there's just so many, it's hard to hone in on one. It's just fun to learn about the history of the Science Museum too and, and you know how it got started and how we're continuing along with it. I even loved when we were here for the planetarium learning about those Chicopee brothers that built, built their the own yeah. viewer. It's yeah. crazy, and that's right. Still right here in that planetarium Still right next works. door. Still works. Yeah, that's so great. <laughs> So those are the kind of things that you'll learn along the way because we put uh, the docents all participate in a year-long, a school-year-long year training program where they come in weekly for training and they have speakers that come from the outside or our own staff. So we really ground everyone kind of the history of the museums and the collections before you're kind of set free in the museums with the group. Mm. Oh, so it's a longer process than I was thinking. Yeah, then, that's too. a lot of training. That's good. Yeah. What are some of your favorite things that you've gotten to share or, or explain to some of the tour groups that have come through the museums? I think what I really like in the Science Museum is that every year we get a special exhibition. So every year they get to learn a new topic in our special exhibitions that come through in the winter. That's cool. What's uh, the special exhibition that um, is either happening now or coming soon? Right now we have Molly of Denali and after that we have- Hey, that's a PBS thing. <laughs> Shameless plug. Shameless plug. <laughs> following Molly of Denali, we have a gingerbread exhibit, and then following gingerbread, we have a Godzilla man. exhibit to eat the gingerbread <laughs> exhibit. That's right. just and us. It's not Godzilla. It's just us eating the gingerbread. <laughs> following gingerbread will be Animation Land, so that'll oh, be our winter. Oh, yes. that's yes. fun. <laughs> that'll be our winter exhibit. So we're super excited about that. We have yeah. a, a couple of changing art exhibits coming up over the next year. So the first one, in partnership with the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, we have As They Saw It, um, which covers about 200 years of uh, of artists. Um, and then we have, in the winter into spring, we have the Smithsonian uh, National Portrait Gallery's The, the Outwin, which is a, a competition. We had it here in 2020. It was fantastic. We're so excited to have it back again. We hope to have some programming with some local artists that won this competition through the Smithsonian. Excellent. So tours will incorporate the special exhibitions. So honestly, docents, you're always learning. You're always learning. So even if you feel like you know the collection well, we always have special exhibitions, so which encourages 
uh, people to learn more. So what kind of a time commitment are we looking at here? This is something you're interested in. We'd like to see them commit at least for two years because in the beginning they're learning the collection and understanding how to give a tour and time themselves because they spend X amount in a particular gallery and then another docent will follow them. So they really have to get the timing done and so forth. Mm -hmm. But we encourage them like they can do, they can tag team with another docent. So it's like the onus isn't on them, like, oh, I've got to know everything, so they can pair up with a seasoned docent. They can dosey docent. Yes. <laughs> okay. Can you work your own jokes into your docent spiel? I mean, yeah. I feel like you have to. Don't you think that's why I probably yeah. want to be a docent? I feel like maybe that's why, that's maybe the detriment. <laughs> Along the same lines, now I can't stop thinking about like doing docent games where like you have like relay teams and yeah. somebody trying to get someone through the museum with the most information possible and everybody at the end gets a quiz and you see how good your job is. I think that would be <laughs> great. <laughs> competitive docentry. We're at the Springfield Museums who have put out a call for more docents. There's going to be more field trips that are going to be coming here. This is such a great resource. There are so many amazing aspects to this museum, not just the science, the art museum, the, the ancient weaponry part of it, not to mention the Dr. Seuss parts of the museum. And again, you don't need to be an expert in any of these things. You just basically like to hang out with kids and teach. Sort of uncomfortable question, but be honest, how much of your job is just telling people not to touch things? <laughs> Well, when we're giving a tour with the kids, we have a lot of props. Yeah. Okay. So the kids can touch things that we allow them to touch. You know, and we say they have to keep a little bit of a safe distance from the paintings, a good arm's length and so forth. And honestly, we've really never had any problems with kids. They're just so excited to be here. Who doesn't like to go on a field trip? Right? Yeah. It's the best part. It was always the best part of school for me. Distraction tactics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Two-year-ish commitment as a docent, but what about on like a week-to-week -week basis if somebody wants to do this? Is How much time of a commitment is it? And is it paid or is this a volunteer commitment? This is a volunteer yeah. commitment and different days for different disciplines. History is on Mondays and we meet from 1.30 to 3.00. Uh, art is on Tuesdays and we meet 1.30 to 3. Science is on Wednesdays and Seuss is on Wednesdays and we alternate every other Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to be a science and a Seuss docent, you could. And you just have to give away a few hours every Wednesday. Exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think we can work this into the fabulous 413 schedule. The show starts at 3. Ah. <laughs> but it's so, we're right we'll down the street. we out of training early. Okay. <laughs> okay, then fine. It also, the, the docent group becomes a wonderful community in and of itself um, with a lot of staff support, but they really enjoy meeting together for these weekly trainings and we also have social events as well uh, and inc really incorporate them into the fabric of the museum. So it's a very supportive group. Even though it's all volunteer to be a docent at the Springfield Museums, there are um, some perks that come along with it. You Correct. get to pet the T-Rex. <laughs> or at least the Seuss, the Seuss elephant, like it's just you, just the Horton, you and Horton, yeah. yeah. Yes. What are some of the benefits? Well, we have a terrific lecture series on Thursdays a la carte and they get to attend free mm -hmm. those lectures. They also get discount at the museum store and museum school. Once they lead tours, they are able to take courses here and get a discount on those as well as some of the excursions and trips they make. And um, we also kick off with a symposium, which we have a, a great speaker and a lovely lunch. And that's all the disciplines come together. And we also have a holiday party. And at the end of the year, we have a graduation party and another fun party. So we're always partying. <laughs> <laughs> party time at the Springfield Museums. 
parties, learning, and kids is what I'm hearing, and that doesn't sound like a terrible combination. Yeah, and some free afternoons, if that's you. Afternoons for training and mornings for the field trips once you get going, leading tours. Mm -hmm. Right. As you become a seasoned docent, there are more opportunities here, such as some specialized weekend tours or giving um, follow-up short gallery conversations following our weekly lecture series. There are more opportunities once you kind of, you know, get grounded and get used to leading the kind of our, our scripted programs that we offer for schools with the special exhibits there always are new opportunities. Mm -hmm. Right. Occasionally we will have an adult group that requests a tour but of course you're not dependent on props so you really have to know the collection well because um, you're giving a tour on your knowledge of what you know about the collection or the special exhibition. So that's honestly something you can choose to do uh, later on when you're familiar with the collection. Adults are harder to distract with toys. Yeah. yeah. But you get to use a whole different set of jokes. You don't. <laughs> you, you I would use, use the, the same, same ones. Jokes. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You said you've been here for 20 years, right? Are you yeah. the longest serving docent? Honestly, a lot of people become friends with each other. And I've known people who have lost a spouse or a partner, and they become very friendly because they share something they enjoy together, and they've traveled together. Mm. So honestly, it's a new way to make new friends. And who doesn't want new friends any point in their life? And uh, this is what we see. A lot of people become very close with each other. And many times they lead a tour and then they go out to lunch with each other. It's, it's a nice community of people. If people are interested and want to become a docent, a volunteer docent here at the Springfield Museums in any of the cavalcade of categories that you have to offer here as museums, where should they go to find out that info? on our website and there is an application or even you know you can come down to the museums in the welcome center and fill out an application just get a badge and start yeah. leading tours yes <laughs> that's what i'm going to do we'll be glad to meet with you and discuss the docent program and so forth and if it's right for you honestly we'd love to have you we start mid september mid september mid september we're ready to go so right. make these decisions now you got about a month to think about it yeah Soon, we'll hear from musicologist, essayist, podcaster, and musician Aaron McKeown for Live Music Friday and about the summer auction at Greenfield Games from Baba Sadowski. But up next, two wines will enter and only one will leave our Tina Turner Memorial Wine Thunderdome. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Back in the Berkshires, in Lenox, at Dare Bottle Shop and Provisions. What's your name? Mary Dare. What's your name? Ben Dare. Done that. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Has anybody used that joke no, before? Never. No, 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 it's not the first. Oh. <laughs> I was like, whenever I have come to somebody's name with a joke and if it has never been heard, oh, I always feel like gosh. it is like a landmark day. Hey, that's a first to me. First to you, and you're married to me. a long him. time, exactly. Yeah. Ben yeah. Dare, done that. Mm -hmm. How long has this shop been in Lenox? So we opened November 2021. So we're just about wrapping up our second summer and having the best time. Where are you from? So I'm from Pittsfield originally. Uh, yep, just down the road. Nice. Ben is a few thousand miles to the east of us originally. Where are you from, Ben? From, the, from France, from the Limousin. So if you see Bordeaux, about an hour and a half inland from Bordeaux. And do they make wines there? No, they don't. That's why I had to compensate. <laughs> They're starting to. They're starting to. I think as kind of the climate changes... You know, yeah. for better or for worse, there are some parts of the world that will start to be coming in on the, the winemaking scene. So we might have some wines from his, his, you know, home region soon. How did you get into wine? 
I met Ben here in Lenox um, and then sold my car, followed him to France. This actually plays into our theme today with our wines because we lived in Provence for several years together and that's where I finished school, started working, worked for wineries and started with export to the United States. And then when we realized our life was bringing us back to the U.S., we wanted to come back to the U.S., I kept that trend going. Worked for importers on this side of the ocean, mm -hmm. selling wine, going to restaurants, to retail shops like ours. And then it's just been kind of the path of all these years of phasing out of sales and coming into our own, making our dream come true to have our own shop. It's a gorgeous shop. Thank you. They've also got like coolers full of what I recognize as many high quality craft beers as well. So it's yes. not just yeah. wine. Beer, ciders. Cider. I think I see sardines over there. We've got lots of fish. We love tin fish. Yeah. We love tin fish. Yay. All right. So, so pay close attention. We do, we're doing this as a blind tasting. Mm -hmm. So we want you guys just to kind of remember, keep them on the one and the two, just gotcha. so that we can keep them clear. Because as you can see, color wise, you know, the profile of the wines, they are almost Cheers. interchangeable. So we've got a fun challenge for you guys today. Rosés? which they both appear yep, to be, absolutely. are very hard for me mm -hmm. to recognize the grape of the rosé because it's by definition not as extracted a flavor like if it were a red wine and yeah, you were gonna leave it on the skins, sure. you would maybe know it was Pinot Noir because it was super light or you maybe would know it was Shiraz because it was black peppery or something like exactly. that. But these are both light. I was going to give you hints, but oh, I think okay. we should maybe yeah. keep the grape. No, keep the, um, like, keep, keep us entirely in the dark okay. so that yeah. I can cool. fully embarrass myself. <laughs> and I did put out, so we have these little tasting mats, and it's something we love to do in the shop. We'll have customers come, and we do private guided tastings with folks, and we'll dive into whether it's a region or a grape or a style of wine. And we love, you know, to encourage folks to sort of slow down. We're here, we're tasting wine, and it's that kind of that one moment where we don't have hopefully any other distractions and can kind of nerd out in terms of, you know, what are we seeing in the glass? What are we getting for aromas, taste profile? Have it with some cheese, some saltier sweet snacks as well, and to see how that changes. So it is a little moment to sort of allow that space. I love the nose on this so much. Yay, I'm I just so, want to stick my so whole face in it. This wine is part of a category of wines that's there's an ocean of it out there. So it's hard to find those lighthouses of wines that stand above the rest. And this is one of them. So we'll talk Way about it. Way to not mix metaphors. I know, right? I'm getting so, like a grapefruit rind. Yes, absolutely. Clingy like, peach. Yeah, peach. Not a very, very ripe peach, but like a slightly underripe peach. Mm -hmm. So like, Almost especially like flower. A, yeah, right around the pit of the peach. <laughs> yes. The stone fruit coming in, right? Mm -hmm. Mineral. So minerality is a word that we throw around a lot. It's really hard to even describe what it is, but it's like alluding to or evoking, you know, what these vines are digging deep into. And that minerality is those, you know, a lot of times ancient seabeds that have receded from some of the most notorious wine regions like Champagne or Burgundy, where it's just full of literal... like Hemorrhagian soil. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Like... <laughs> Sea creature skeletons are still hanging out. and it, weird shells all over Champagne because it used to be the ocean exactly. bottom. I'm getting, I'm getting a little bit of dead shells in here. Well, that's what minerality is. It's exactly. like it's like when you lick rocks. Yeah. Uh, another hint that I'll, I'll give. These wines are both produced for 5,000 miles from each other, so they're very, very far in distance. But they do share a lot of similarities in terms of shared experiences. One of the winemakers lived in this part of the world for a while and really took everything he loved about that area 
back with him, and it's really what inspires his portfolio mm. and his winemaking style. So I'm assuming this one's not going to be French, because who would go to like California and bring California style to France? Really? Oh, it might be being done. I wouldn't be surprised. There's some <laughs> crazy stuff happening out there. Okay. <laughs> it's a crazy world we live in. There is a little difference, though. Um, are you guys seeing a difference in the color? Mm-hmm. So that's something. Yeah, number two is a little pinker. Too, right? Rose. Yeah, exactly. This is more like the color of, for be- lack of better metaphor, ballet slippers. Mm-hmm. And this is more like babyish. Yeah. I was going to say, number one looks healthfully hydrated. Okay. Nice. Do people love to come in here when they're going to Tanglewood and yes. get all the provisions they yeah. need for the lawn? That's we have shed awesome. seats for tonight, but we oh, should great. probably bring stuff and eat it on the lawn it's... and then go to the shed. Because they don't let you bring it into the shed, right? right? right. That's the way to do it. Yes. Shed seats, you're assured no matter what rain shine, you've got a great show, but you can enjoy the picnic beforehand yeah. on the lawn. What do you think about this, Ben Dare? You haven't been saying anything. <laughs> you don't want to be part of the show? <laughs> ben Dare, don't die. Our inspiration for this lineup today came from a place that we, you know, kind of was our second home for a long time, and stories that we like to tell when we're sharing bottles with friends and family and our customers in the shop. So one of those wines comes from this area that we did live in. Should I should I say the areas or no? What do you, no, what do you guys mean, want to I'm do? No, I I'm going to no, go okay. out on a limb and say it's probably Provence. Yes. If we're talking <laughs> rosé. Yeah. Yep, gave that one away too. Yes. So <laughs> to me, Provence right. is the number one exactly. best rosé place in the world. Exactly. It's yeah. definitely what put really put, put pink wine, rosé wine on the map, Provence. And stole it away from being trash wine like white Zinfandel, like my Italian-American people. Let's not talk about... Yeah, ruined pink wine for generations. <laughs> so when we talk about Provence Rosé, all of the good that it's done for that region, you know, it's it's their claim to fame along with the, the blue skies and Vincent van Gogh and the Mediterranean stony beaches, but there's a lot of bad Provence wine out there because it has become obviously what, especially the U.S. market has been clamoring for, pink wine from with Provence on the label, a very certain tone in the glass, not too, not too pink. You know, there, you do have to kind of be careful about the wines you are choosing from Provence because there can be some that are just the equivalent of the McDonald's of the wine world. Yeah. The Northeastern cheese makes this taste creamy. Number one. uh, Yes, the number one wine, but this tastes creamy and this more buttery. Isn't that fun when that I happens? I love that. Yes, that's and what it's all about. <laughs> the number one's acidic structure seems to be much more high in acid than the number two in my tasting, yeah, which feels right. a lot it's more a, it's another rounded fruit. Mm-hmm. Ben's nodding his head oh. over there. But I cannot tell you, there's a little more, so let's say we, we can say it's a blend or no? I don't know. I think right? you guys you got guess, that, that, that was blend. Both of them are blends. Yeah, like most roses. Yeah, most yeah. roses. Yeah. But here you have... The addition of like those, those those differentiate grapes make the big difference. The acidity you're just finding right now, and also it's all about the vintage. Yes, the terroir will give you somehow the same wine, but the vintage prior to that was way less acidic. Right. So all of this co- come to consideration, I will say. Yeah. Think of your vintage cucumbers in Western Mass. There you go. Like your vintage cucumbers from last year might have been small but really crispy because there was no water, and this year they're like water balloons in your mouth. One of them is from Provence, and the other one is yeah, not. Okay. Exactly. Gonna, yeah, exactly. One is from Provence. So we're trying you to... got that. The okay. other is not. The winemaker was inspired by his time having lived in Provence. Okay. One of these is, uh, I believe, probably from the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Think about it. Right? You're a microcosm of the wines we're tasting, Ben Dare and Mary Dare from Dare Provisions here in Lenox. It could be California. There is some nice California rosé that's done in this elegant style. Mm -hmm. 
I prefer Oregon or Washington State. I think because it's juicier and fruitier, mm-hmm. that I'm going to guess that number two is the California, is the U.S. It's wine. The is that correct? Yeah. There's a little bit of salinity in the first one, too. Right. And U.S. wines don't quite get that element, mm. no matter where it's grown. Right. Like, we just don't. All right, so which, which state do you think, then, for, for that second wine? It's so light in color, and it's just juicy enough that it could still be California, but I'm going to go with Oregon. Oh, all right, interesting. Am I wrong? You're wrong. Okay. <laughs> There's a part of me that wants to say Finger Lakes, and I don't know why. We love the Finger Lakes, yeah, but not... it's not the Finger Lakes. No. Nope. Tell us where it's from, Ben Dare. Oh, that's California. It was California. California. So good. I should have gone with my gut. Where in California? Northern California. I almost said Northern California, but I didn't. So So the part that wants to be Oregon? Exactly. (laughs) Not quite that far north. Your Kino is the name of the winery, and that's their Van Gris. So you can even see, you know, they, they, in their marketing, the whole approach to making this wine, it's founded in in that inspiration. Your Kino is how you say it? Provence. Yep. Some people pronounce it Biracino. Two friends. Alex Krauss and John Locke, who started this winery in 2008 and really inspired by both of their travels. We've met Alex, so we know his story. He John was Locke in, is lost on an island we don't somewhere. Know I'm not a big believer in magic, but this place is different. It's special. Also, a philosopher. We won't go there. Their tasting room, their winery is based in Santa Cruz, but they work with vineyards, kind of in, an, in a almost like a fan outside of Santa Cruz. They get the best fruit every year from the same people and then made in you know with obviously california roots but really inspired by the provencal style tell us about the provencal wine provencal producer so these guys are right in you know kind of the heart of provence they're actually in a growing area called the alpe de haute provence which means it's really where the alps are starting out the grape that is starring in both of these wines is the same so that's the, that's our our final guest that you guys do have to come. It's Grenache. Oh. He, he totally gave it away because I was going to say Cinso. Oh, I'm sorry. Right oh, I love it. Thank you. I ruined the show. You're making the show, Ben Dare. So Grenache is, yeah, the main player in both of those wines, which we thought was a neat kind of thing to consider. Now, here's going to be the hard part for you, Mary and Ben Dare, from Dare Bottle Shop and Provisions in Lenox. We vote on which one we like the best. Right. And it can change day to day. Uh-huh. You might not have the same vote about these same two wines tomorrow with a different right. plate in front of you right. or with different circumstances. But if you had to choose today, which wine do you want to take home with you? I'm ready. I'm a Francophile when it comes to wine. So mm-hmm. I can't help myself. I admit it. Before I knew it was French, even though I was pretty sure it was French right away, right. the bright acidity of this one mm. is really what I love. My vote is for the Provençal Haute Plateau. Am I saying oh, that right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Haute Plateau. Haute Plateau. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Oh. Well, who wants to be the second vote? You looked at me I and I win. My, my preference, too, and it's because it's a place that it's close to my heart. We've been there. I think that makes it, you know, and it's really a privilege to be able to go to some of these places in the world and, and have the wines, that style of wine there. That's why I do love the Provencal Rosé. I think, uh, yeah, my heart lies in Provence. Vote for the French one and I vote for the American. Okay, there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. So there we go. That's your official vote, Ben? No, for real. Because I think in this one, there is more than the Grenache. 
They use grapes that we've seen grown in France, and I like what they do. There is Mourvedre, there is Vermentino, uh, Roll. Um, so it's very interesting for me. Okay, so it's two Provence and one California. I have to agree. This is like, it's you keep been... voting for California wines, Khalees. No, it's like, I know, this is like my second time. I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> but... I like the acidity and the structure of the French one, but the fruit's not overpowering this. In fact, like when I had it with the pickles, it bloomed. Well, once again, it's a draw. This has been like yeah. several draws in a row. It's been decided by a, a uh, an extra taster in other locations mm-hmm. by the flip of a coin. How do we resolve this? Tony Dunn, day? our director, Tony Dunn, <laughs> who does not who does drink, not drink <laughs> as our designated driver. Given the description, only the description of these wines, if you had to choose which one you were most curious to bring home to somebody who would be drinking, which one would you take home? The one that's born in the USA. Hi. California wins! Hi. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this, this with us. Nice. We're really glad Thank to get to know you. Me. Yeah. Thanks for making it all the way out west. Oh, no problem. We try to cover the whole 413. We do. Awesome. We're trying to be good about it. No county left behind. Awesome. <laughs> yes, I love it. Thank you, guys. Soon, we'll help you lighten your board game load with Greenfield Games' Summer Auction. And up next, before they bring their songs to the woods this weekend, we'll have Live Music Friday with Aaron McKeown. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. Monty is away pushing his oldest child out of the nest so that he might fly away to Lands Collegiate. It's Live Music Friday, and today we're incredibly lucky to have multidisciplinary artist Aaron McKeown with us. Aaron McKeown is a musician, writer, and producer known internationally for their prolific disregard of stylistic boundaries, their brash and clever electric guitar playing, and acoustic guitar playing, frankly. Like, this bio leaves out. I brought my acoustic today. I (laughs) should have read the bio. No, it's totally fine. Like, it's just like... You play so many instruments, and this just doesn't necessarily encompass all of the things that you do. But anyhow, going past how awesome they are on so many instruments, Aaron's first musical, Miss You Like Hell, was written with Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Chiara Alegria Udes, opened off-Broadway at the Public Theater in 2018. It was nominated for five Drama Desk Awards, including Best Lyrics. The Wall Street Journal named it Best Musical of 2018. Aaron was 2020-21 professor of the practice at Brown University. This is so long. And I was going to say, maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe no. everyone's like, okay, we get it. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> take these flowers while you can. Okay, I'll take them. <laughs> 2022. 2023 fellow at the University of Chicago's Gray Center for the Arts and Inquiry. They'll play a collaborative show this weekend, teaming up with the trustees of the Reservation for Scenic Songs, a hiking concert happening this weekend in Windsor. Aaron is about to go back on tour with the folks from the podcast Welcome to Night Vale. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. That's how we met. <laughs> I know. We actually <laughs> met through Welcome to Night Vale and um, their merchandise empire yeah. is how we met. But it's such a pleasure to see you here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Let's start with a song. Yes. Awesome. This is a song called Jokes Bombed, and I wrote it as a wedding gift for some friends last summer. Jokes bombed, 
empires fell and in between i loved you well well enough for 50 years well enough through laughs and tears whether or not the gag was swell For a million years You enough through laughs and tears From that day my search was through Marry me for the wedding stuff Marry me in times good or rough Wherever you are it is enough Mr. Mrs. or Mix Wherever you are Forever sidekicks Jokes bombed Empires fell In between I loved you well Well enough to take this chance Well enough to dance this dance Well enough for the stars above Tonight we light them up, my love Wherever you are, it is enough Wherever you are, it is enough Yay! <laughs> That's Erin McKeown, local multidisciplinary artist. I'm so glad that you started with that particular song because in listening to your podcast, which grew out of your newsletter, that's one of the ones that you talk about the process of writing pretty in depth. It yeah, seems like your songwriting like people, style has changed. It's really changed. And I, I'm glad to hear that because everyone has a podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like 10 years ago, I probably should have gotten on that bandwagon. But now this is where it's happening. For 25 years, I've had a monthly newsletter for fans. And it's always been tour dates and stuff. And maybe two years ago, I transitioned it to essays just because I like to write. And then it just seemed natural to start reading the essay. And I thought, well, if I'm going to read the essay, I should just put a song in there. <laughs> that is what <laughs> I mostly do. Yeah, Facts of Life is what it's called, F-A-X, Facts of Life. And yeah, I try to I try to take a song and explain it. I try to take a song and connect it to an essay. It means I have to come up with a song every two weeks, um, which is really good for me. And it means that if you like my music, you get something from me every two weeks instead of once every five years when I come to your town or make a record. And it's not always like polished stuff. There's demos. I There's mean, like pretty much never. You yeah. have a recording of you at twelve learning <laughs> to play the Beatles as yeah. part of it's this. It's me too. standing in the shower of my parents' house, like with a boombox <laughs> positioned. I must say very carefully. I did test where to put the boombox in the shower. <laughs> um, yeah, learning to play guitar and sing a Beatles song for my dad's birthday. It's like um, an outlet for that. I think um, a much more intimate thing to put in someone's ears. Um, you wouldn't do that on stage. And I mean, I wouldn't do that on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I 
mean, and that's that's a great thing about yeah, that's a great thing about audio. And as you so kindly put it, like I like to do a lot of things. I like to write. I like to learn instruments. I like to write songs. Um, I like to play sports. Um, I like to raise my dog. You know, so trying to find a, a venue for all of that, the podcast has been really great. You say that you don't like to do like things intimate like that, but I feel like your last album, Kiss Off Kiss, was incredibly <laughs> intimate. Yes, that is true, actually. Was that, that more just breaking out of your shell or? It was a bit of a, a try to return to form. So I've been doing this for a long time and always tried different things with my records, but in some ways sort of got away from what I really like most, which is like rock and roll and pop and kind of compact little song forms that really are just little like snippets of what's happening inside of me. I scratched the itch for bigger things when I wrote musicals, bigger feelings and bigger stories. I scratched the itch of like literariness with my essays. So like, where am I going to put my little love complaints? Um, <laughs> except in these songs, which is if you if you think about my first records, um, that's pretty much what they were was like little acoustic love complaints. So Kiss Off Kiss was in that sense a return to form in it, that sense of like I had the true story, like had a very short intimate relationship. Um, we went on like four dates and then the pandemic happened and that relationship was over anyway for its own reasons and I thought how many songs can I get out of four dates <laughs> and the answer was 13 so that that's how Kiss Off Kiss happened and um, yeah and there were just these little snapshots of moments from my relationship you know shared in a very rock and roll style which is what I you know really grew up playing. Touring is stressful. You're doing this concert out in the woods on a hike, which I think is kind of the coolest. How did that collaboration come about? It's such a great story. So saying the quiet part out loud is that I basically retired from touring and I didn't make a big announcement about it or anything. But almost two years ago, I was just like, this isn't this isn't working for me anymore. It isn't working financially for me. It's not working emotionally for me, mental health and physical health. I really took a step back from that. I got my dog, Carl Richard Marks, and like that's a, a more sedentary or home-based life, a local life is what I've been looking for. But at the same time, trying to find these ways to stay in a more public conversation about music. So the podcast is a great version of that. But it's like it's like two things. It's like you go way, way infinite with the internet, and then you go super local. And I think that's what I've been most interested in. And I did a gig for the trustees at Fruitlands, which is the awesome, weird Alcott Museum <laughs> in Central Mass. <laughs> and afterwards, I was talking to the folks that run that show, and I was saying, you know, what I really just want to do is hang outside with my dog. But wouldn't it be cool if I could just take a guitar with me and a few people? Like, thinking about this hyper-local, hyper-intimate, like, experience of music, and they were like, we can help with that. So that's how the, the idea of the concert series was born. Last summer, we did four of them. And this summer, there's eight. The principle is super simple. We walk on a medium to easy hike for half an hour, 40 minutes. I play music for you in like literally just me and the guitar, whatever I can carry. And then we walk back. And the whole thing is maybe like two hours. They bring snacks. People bring their own chairs if they want or just sit on the ground. Last summer, I did mine at Jewel Hill in Central Mass and um, played on this like beautiful rocky outcropping. And this time it's at Notchview in Dalton. And we'll take a easy hike to the first shelter and do the concert there. I have a real desire to like take people on like, you know, like 45 minutes of a hard part of like the Seven Sisters or something. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, that's what I want. I want to suffer and then play the guitar. Um, but Where's we also like relief. <laughs> yeah, but we also do want to make it accessible for people who 
maybe don't spend as much time outdoors as other people. It can be a real cool gateway. It could be someone's first hike. And the trustees do such a great job of choosing the properties. And um, we're going to have a naturalist with us on this hike. So she's going to sort of stop and give us like nature facts. I'm really proud of the idea. And I'm really proud of how the series has grown. And it's, it's like the peak example of why I love living here and also where I'm at in my own career. Is it going to be hard adjusting back to doing more of a touring schedule when you go on the road with Night Vale? The Night Vale thing is like, it's like I, I really miss being on stage. I'll just be totally honest. Like, I, I really miss it. It's not really There's my There's very cho- few rushes like it. I know. And it wasn't really my choice to like. I mean, it's yes, it's my choice to retire. But, like, it was a, a self-actualized response to all these other pressures that were out of my control. So, you know, if it were up to me, I'd, I'd totally be touring, but people would come. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, like, my body wouldn't be breaking down. Of course, I miss that feeling of entertaining people and challenging myself. I mean, you know this. It's like like on your toes, using all the skills you've ever imagined that you need all at once, like really fast while people are watching you. And it's just great. Yeah, there isn't anything like it. So I really, I really miss it. The Nightville thing is like, um, it's like a really delicious dessert. It's like 10 days. I'm going to do a couple, like really a bunch of shows, like tightly packed in those 10 days and going to like overdose on candy. <laughs> I've heard it's not like the best thing possible. And um, folks who know Welcome to Night Vale know that, you know, the characters are so great and the people that play them, if you've seen their live shows, are so nice. And it's like a bit of a family vacation and a pie and how many metaphors can I throw in? But, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a, it satisfies that itch for me that uh, in some way that can't ever be satisfied. But is that depressing? Is no. it depressing for me to be no, like... No, <laughs> that's not at all. It's very real. Like, people like don't that I had to make under- this choice. Yeah, <laughs> people don't realize and unless we tell them they'll continue to think like oh well this is all like glamorous like no touring is hard it's hard on people's bodies it's hard on their like mental health it's just hard stepping away from it to become better and more you is important having a creative space where we allow people to take that needs to be more readily available to those who take up creative mediums you know we it's feel i feel like we talk about it with like I was just seeing that like Simone Biles has just returned to competition after going through a very gymnast-specific mental health issue. We get that conversation a little bit around artists with maybe drug or alcohol addiction, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe my part of that is just to be more honest about like what my choices have been, and I, I know I know I'm not alone in having made these choices. Mm-hmm. And if you're curious about the things that Aaron McKeown gets up to, join their newsletter and listen to their podcast, Facts of Life, which is really wonderful. Thank Thank you so much for joining me. Let's have one last song. Yeah, sure, sure. Awesome. Um, we did talk about Kiss Off Kiss. And so if the first song I played was like for someone else's love story, <laughs> that they were very excited to join in matrimony, that is not my jam. <laughs> and so this is a song from Kiss Off Kiss that sort of describes um, how, how my heart works. <laughs> I guess I've gotten on of heart I'm in for good or I give up till you get a space or a kiss you don't know which one you're with my heart is like a line in the sand you're never landing on the middle of it it's either gonna sink or swim it's either gonna feel everything or feel nothing nothing when it hears your name when it 
gone, it's gone You'll never get it back again It's gonna stop or start my on-off heart I'm head over heels or not I'm freezing cold or paradise hot It's either I believe or I don't I'm all in, I'm all in Or I feel nothing Nothing when I hear your name When I'm gone, I'm gone You'll never get me back again It's gonna stop or start my on-off heart thing about an off heart, it thinks it's so alone Done like a small stuff, needs a lightning strike To hit it right, to make it turn back on I guess I've gotten on off hard when i said i loved you it was racing hard and when i said i'm leaving that was the space between the beating Kian, thank you so much for coming Please, on the Fabulous 413. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Up next, a board game auction happening in Greenfield by the people and for the peoples. We'll talk with Bubba Sadowski of Greenfield Games. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. Maybe you're like me and have a bit of a board game problem and are looking to maybe simplify your collection. Lucky for you, it's time for the summer auction at Greenfield Games, and I'm here with Bubba Sadowski to learn more about this online event. Thank you for joining me. Hey there, Khalees. How's it going? All right. So how did this idea come about to do an online auction during the summer months, the end of the summer months? Well, honestly, the idea to do it online was a thing that we were forced to do by the pandemic. Um, We've done auctions at Greenfield Games for years and years and years, but everything used to be in person. People would show up and bid on slips of paper, bidding in person, having everything close on one big day. And we didn't want to lose that event. So we had to figure out a way to make it still happen when people couldn't gather. And turns out it was easier to keep it online afterwards. (laughs) Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. It's easier um, overall. It's more accessible because a lot of our customers aren't necessarily local anymore. Mm-hmm. And this way, we've had bidders all the way down to uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So when people are submitting their games to you, how do they go about doing this? So the primary way at the moment is to go to auction.greenfieldgames.com fill out a short form involving a picture, put your minimum bid, uh, put a description, give us your contact info, and then just hit submit. Then once you've done that, bring it into the store and we'll finish it for you. When you see really cool things show up on the docket, do you give your friends the heads up? They're like, hey, 
hey, someone's someone's selling Black Angel. Maybe maybe you should come to the site and check it out. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, in case you're bad at culling your collection like I am. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> I have a tremendous shame pile that I call it of about 100 games still in shrink that I haven't played. It's terrible. Oh, let's not talk about that. I keep getting things in from Kickstarter and it's real bad. <laughs> What's something that's come in that you're really excited to to get into somebody's hands? Um, let's see. Something for this auction that I'm really excited about. We've had a lot of indie RPGs come in. Oh, cool. And just today, someone brought in a copy of the Tingleverse RPG. Oh, no! Which is based <laughs> on the works of Chuck Tingle. I didn't know that was a thing. I'm so glad that it is. I am afraid to play it. <laughs> I'm I'm exactly on the same boat with you, but I also know my wife is probably going to win it, so I'm probably going to play it. <laughs> Good luck to you, sir, in that endeavor for sure. Thank you. <laughs> is is there a deadline for submitting games and for for placing bids? Hmm? We have to have everything and put on our Discord for the 18th. Okay. And bidding is going to start and close throughout the day on the 26th. Ah, okay. So, so you have so, about a week to bring your stuff in. Cool. So so uh, end of submission for, for items to go up for auction on the 18th and end of bidding happens on the mm-hmm. 26th. But in the meantime, there's a That's wealth correct. of things to to enjoy both in the auction and at Greenfield Games themselves where they have like places that you can play. It's been a wonderful space to uh, in, encourage my terrible hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you oh, it's so. Not terrible. It's fun. <laughs> we appreciate you being there for sure. Thank you so much for chatting with us, however briefly, Bubba Sandowski. You can check out more about their auction. We'll take you at- right back, Kalise. Oh, no problem. Next week on the show, we are at the very height of festival season, and a bunch are happening next week. We'll find out about the Lego Festival at BrickCon and the New England Latino Festival and all of the funny things happening with the Far Out Queer Comedy Festival. Thanks to the entire tireless Fab 413 tech team, I'm Khalees Smith. Monty Belmonte is dropping off his child, but we will both see you next week in the Fabulous 413.